Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of award-winning environmental reporter and best-selling author Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Later in this episode, we will talk about a story I'm sure everyone remembers. It was uh, quite the scandal, quite the tabloid fodder involving an astronaut, a long car ride, and potentially diapers and murder. So, a perfect Florida story, if you will. Yeah. But we yeah. <laughs> we start with Craig's latest uh, article from the Florida Phoenix Online. You can find that at floridaphoenix.com. And it um, recalls a lot of commentary about 2020. Oh, poop. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I wrote about how the governor uh, went to Wikiwachi Springs, to uh, not to cavort with the mermaids there, no. unfortunately, but to... Uh, unveil what he said was the sort of the opening salvo in a campaign to restore the state springs, which, as it turns out, is actually the third year of a program that Rick Scott actually started, mm-hmm. um, which is even funnier if you know how much those two guys loathe each other. They just, they really do not get along. Do they um, really? I, I didn't oh, where, where does oh, that stem? Because they seem well, so politically kind of, they, I mean, to me, uh, the same. Well, potentially they both want to run for president the same year. So anyway, hmm. um, and then I went on from there to kind of talk about the pollution in the springs a lot of it comes from the bad way we handle poop in florida and that we yeah. have this long history of mishandling it and that every just about every city you can name around the state has had a sewage spill that has led to not just pollution in the water but also potentially fuels toxic algae blooms so yeah. so mermaids and poop it's a great combo it's a great combo yeah, absolutely so. <laughs> uh, and that that problem with the poop you really tie back i mean there are some issues with septic tanks and things of that nature but really yeah. it's the massive influx of people that continue to come into the state which is is well, yeah. fine and that's great but our infrastructure to handle all of this uh waste has never really been brought up to where it needs yeah. to be no, and, and, and local governments are, in many cases, allergic to charging impact fees on new development because they're afraid it'll stop the new development. But mm-hmm. that means the existing taxpayers have to pay the bill for providing all the new services, new roads, new schools, and new sewers, which is sort of what I was writing about. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to pay that much money. So if you don't make growth pay for itself and nobody else wants to pay for it, then it ends up breaking the system. Yeah. And you know, and then we're all swimming in poop, which nobody wants. Right. Or blue-green algae or red tide. And, and yeah. what you also talk about is when all of this waste inevitably spills over due to big rain events or, you know, breaks in, in infrastructure, well, it's the uh, average Joe citizen who either loses his job related to the tourism industry or is forced to pay for the massive cleanup effort that is uh, required when it gets too bad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So basically the whole column is about poop, but I threw in the mermaid so people would read it anyway. So there you go. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the honey and the poop is the vinegar. Exactly. It, exactly. It, it does tie nicely to uh, one of our previous episodes, episode 12, which was all about the Florida and aquifer and the uh, springs across the state and the exploration of those springs. So if you haven't uh, heard that one and you are interested in, in some of these water issues, you can uh, go back and listen to episode 12. Something that uh, was not poopy for me was a stay I recently had at the Ponte Vedra Inn and Club, not far from where 
Uh, I live on Amelia Island in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, right here outside of Jacksonville. Ponte Vedra Inn and Club is a five-star property rated by you know, Forbes and AAA and whoever you uh, want to listen to about your resort accommodations. They recently put some new uh, units right on the beach in Ponte Vedra Beach. I mean, you are, when they say steps from the beach, you are steps from the beach. If you love golf, if you love spas, if you love fine dining, if you're looking for a special event, getaway, anniversary, honeymoon, something like that, Ponte Vedra Inn and Club in Ponte Vedra is something you definitely want to look into. One of the most historic, one of the nicest uh, resort accommodations in the state. Now, as we get prepared for our guest, we're going to talk uh, a lot about NASA, a lot about astronauts, and we do that, of course, because of Cape Canaveral in Florida. And Craig's book, Oh, Florida, which you can find at Amazon, talks some about Cape Canaveral and the astronauts and NASA coming here. Fill our listeners in about how this uh, came to be. It was because of a disaster, of course. There, originally, they were planning to uh, do missile testing at a base in Texas, and the one of the missiles went off course and wound up blowing up a cemetery in Tijuana and caused <laughs> an inst- international incident. Yeah. And so the Air Force said, you know what, let's find a better place for our missile the testing missile, range. Wait, I'm sorry, the missile went from Texas to Tijuana? Well, that's, a, that's, well, that's hundreds, yeah, of, I mean, mi- was, hundreds well, of miles. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. <laughs> you say, not well, where it was supposed to go. Well, I mean, that could so. have just as easily been San Diego. I mean, you say that, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's Mexico. Well, I mean, San Diego and Tijuana sure. are like 20 miles apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could have gone could have gone north too. Um, so uh, so they said, let's find a place that's so far away from everything else mm-hmm. that it won't hit anything. And so they <laughs> they picked Cape Canaveral, Florida, which was at the time very very isolated. I mean, there, pirates had had sailed along that coast in the 1700s and mm-hmm. said, you know what, that's way too isolated for even us to bury yeah. treasure there. <laughs> they built the missile testing range there, and the other advantage was that it was close to the equator which meant that when things took off, if they fired it out towards the Atlantic Ocean, it got an extra little push thanks to the Earth's rotation. Rotation. So so then when they started looking at places to send astronauts into space, they said, how about that spot? So then if something goes wrong, they'll hit the water, not Mm -hmm. (laughs) not land. And so that's how we wound up with Cape Canaveral in Florida. Have you been there? Uh, Yes, yes. I've been there a couple of times. And the best time, I went with my kid's Boy Scout troop, and we actually spent the night in the uh, NASA complex there, oh, wow. slept under a, a decommissioned Saturn V rocket. Wow. Uh, which was, yeah, it was very cool. And got kind of a little backstage tour there for the boys, which is, they really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's just a great thing to go, to go visit. I mean, these days, SpaceX is kind of in the driver's seat mm-hmm. there, but it's still cool to see those things and see what's there. And especially to see the vehicle assembly building, which I believe is the tallest building. Well, I know it's the tallest building in Florida. I think it's the tallest building in the United States. Wow. Wow. Now, the fortunes of that area have kind of ebbed and flowed with the the prominence of the space program. I I remember reading in, oh, Florida, when Sputnik and there was this huge space race and all this Cold War era fervor, that area obviously exploded and and it was not isolated and remote for very much longer after the 50s when all of this began but then as the as NASA and manned space flight and all that thing sort of fell out of fashion that that area has also uh yeah. gone through periods where it's, it's a company town you know yeah. and and when the company's doing well they do well but once they finish their mission to the moon they kind of 
you know, ran out of reasons to have such a huge workforce there. And, and what had been a boom town suddenly went, in, went into a bust. Lisa Nowak is a name that most people won't immediately recognize. But when I share this story and Kimberly Moore, our guest's book, Starcrossed, the story of astronaut Lisa Nowak, everyone will remember it. Lisa Nowak had driven 900 miles from Houston to Orlando to intercept and confront her romantic rival in an airport parking lot, allegedly using diapers on the trip so she wouldn't have to stop. Nowak had been dating astronaut William Billy Ophelian when she learned that Ophelian was seeing a new girlfriend, U.S. Air Force Captain Colleen Shipman. The astronaut love triangle scandal quickly made headlines. The world watched as Nowak was dismissed from NASA, pleaded guilty to a felony, and received an other-than-honorable military discharge. And with that, we'll bring in Kimberly. I have enjoyed reading your book. I have to confess I haven't finished it yet, but it is quite fascinating. What I like about it is that it kind of lifts the veil, or lifts the helmet, I guess you'd say, off this image we have of of astronauts as these, you know, sort of clean-cut, uh, almost superhuman technicians and shows that they're real real people underneath. What's been your experience with, with NASA and Cape Canaveral? When was the first time you ever went there? My first experience with a launch... Actually, I was living in Miami, and I was telling this story the other day. My girlfriend and I were awake at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and we knew there was a 10 or 11 o'clock launch, and we just kind of looked at each other and said, hey, let's go. And we jumped in her car and drove up to the Cape. We didn't have a pass to get in, but got in a line of cars and pulled up and nice, helpful guy there gave us a pass and went and watched it. To this day, I still don't know where I saw the launch from. Um, I know it was along (laughs) a causeway. We were fairly far away because when the speaker came on and said that it had launched, we could everybody kind of mumbled, where? <laughs> we couldn't see it. So we were we were fairly far away. Kimberly is an award-winning investigative reporter. She covered NOAC's criminal case for Florida Today as reported on multiple space shuttle launches. Who was Lisa Nowak before when she came to be known by everyone in America? She was an incredibly accomplished and brilliant person. Um, She went to the United States Naval Academy at a time when not very many women went there. She was a naval aviator. She could fly 30 aircraft, um, including experimental aircraft. She also taught flying, very accomplished. And then she became an astronaut and joined the astronaut corps about 10 years before she had her one and only flight. You know, she was in training and then the Columbia accident happened. And Mm. so that delayed more flights. How does someone apply or become selected for astronaut corps? I mean, no one starts their career as an astronaut, I'm assuming. How does that uh, progression or, or path typically look like? Usually you join a branch of the military. She joined the Navy. There are people, I believe, from all branches who have been astronauts. You generally are an engineer of some sort. You are generally a pilot of some sort. Now, other people have taken different paths into it, like Laurel Clark, um, who did perish on board Columbia. She was a doctor, a medical doctor, and she went in via that route. 
Piers Sellers was uh, an environmental scientist, and he was British. He was in uh, the British military, and he learned to fly before he could drive a car, actually. So there are different routes. Now, the, the folks who become astronauts, they're, well, I was taken by some comments by a, a psychiatrist towards the end of the book talking about how there's sort of this PR image-making machine, but behind the image-making machine, there's a lot of stuff going on that the public never sees among the astronauts. How did these two kind of hook up in the first place? She, they were both married to other people, weren't they? They were both married to other people. About a year after Columbia, they went on a uh, training mission an Arctic training mission up in Canada. That was the wilderness survival thing, right? Right. And so most people believe that that is where it started. You know, there's campfires and cozy tents, and I'm not quite sure exactly what happened up there. But to, to dumb it down and to put it in terms everyone can understand, this is a workplace romance. I mean, really nothing more, yes. nothing less, right? I mean, we think right. of astronauts, I mean, clearly their intellect is beyond most of us, but they're flesh and bone as well, you know, and they are, are <laughs> you know, susceptible to this sort of thing. You're around people, you have a sparky. I mean, it's it, it's a workplace romance. And, and from, from that first encounter, what was the trajectory of the relationship? They had actually met long before that. They were both okay. stationed at uh, Naval Air Station Patuxent uh, in Maryland, okay. mm-hmm. and they met there. She was kind of on her way out, heading to the astronaut corps, and he was on his way in, becoming an experimental aircraft pilot. But they met there, so they kind of knew each other from that, and then their friendship, you know, continued when he was chosen as an astronaut, and like you say, a workplace romance. You know, her marriage had been failing for a long time, and they had agreed before Columbia that they would divorce after her flight. And then, you know, Columbia happened, her flight got delayed, so it kind of just went on for years and years. And They did separate after her flight, and they have since divorced. You know, she found somebody who understood the demands of the job, who under the demands at home and um, fell in love with them. Yeah. Just to put a timeline to this, the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster was February 1, 2003. Most of us will remember that as the uh, shuttle broke apart during re-entry. Was she and her husband, were they going to stay together for the optics of her going into space? Is that why they decided to not get divorced until after her mission? Or what was the reason for setting that timeline? I'm not sure if it was the optics or just child care things. Yeah, um, that's a good point. And, uh, Convenience, you know, taking yeah. Care, taking Logistics. care of the kids. Mm-hmm. He did get sent away um, after September 11th. He was called back up to the Navy. He was also um, in the Navy, and I believe a pilot. Did he formally dump her, or did they just sort of drift apart? It was mutual from what I understood. I have heard that he was seeing somebody else. I don't, I've never been able to confirm that. Oh, while they were together? Yeah. Right. Does NASA offer any sort of counseling for its astronauts who might be having trouble? Because she clearly was having some mental difficulties at the time all this was going on. Before this happened, they did not offer any psychological screening or counseling after they went through their interview process. During the interview process to become an astronaut, you do go through a screening. Now, um, for Mercury and Gemini, it was 30 hours 
actually, I think for Mercury, it was 30. And then Gemini and Apollo, it got reduced down to about 10 hours. And then for the shuttle astronauts, it got reduced down to about three hours. Hmm. Wow. Um, but you think then, it would be more, because uh, especially after the two disasters. I mean, the, the, I'm assuming that for Mercury, they did they did such a long period because it was such an unknown about what would happen. I mean, you know, and the astronauts jokingly called themselves spam in a can. Yeah. They, did, they didn't have any control over what happened with the rocket. They were basically just human cargo. But the shuttle folks, they could control what was going on. And even so, they still had two huge, very public, very nasty disasters to deal with. So you would think that the issue of, of mental fitness would be a big one for the folks at NASA. Well, it is now. And it is now yeah. um, in part because of this. Oh, because of the Lisa Nowak case? Wow. Yes. They added um, a psychological screening to their annual physical. If you go up to the International Space Station and you're there for any length of time, you do a monthly check-in with um, a psychologist, it has become a part of their routine. But I will say, astronauts are loath to admit to any kind of issue mm-hmm. because if they do, it will ground them. And mm-hmm. your whole point is to fly. So right. nobody wants to be grounded. Well, yeah, that's and certainly for, true for, for military pilots sure. as well. Right? And just yeah. that whole mm-hmm. culture. I mean, it's it's so overwhelmingly male. So you've got the macho thing. You've got the military thing, which you're supposed to be impervious to any sort of outside stimulus or, or influences. I mean, the, it's a, a crucible for this attitude of I'm fine, stiff upper lip, and just plow mm-hmm. through my problems until, you know, my circuitry goes totally haywire, as Lisa Nowak's uh, apparently did. And you in the book have details of Noack's psychiatric diagnosis that have not been released before. What what was she suffering from? Oh, gosh, there was a whole list of things. She had obsessive compulsive disorder, Asperger's syndrome. Really? Uh, oh, yes. and But that could be an advantage for an astronaut. It can be because yeah. they... You're very detail-oriented, yeah. Yes. And, you know, and she did she certainly made a list and stuck to it of the stuff that she was going to bring, and that is very, uh, very Asperger's. But they also don't mm-hmm. pick up on social cues. Mm. And William Ossoline was kind of doing a fade out. He met Colleen Shipman about a month before his mission, and then Thanksgiving was coming up. And then, of course, he was at the tail end of training for his mission. Um, His mission happened at the beginning of December. He got back just before Christmas, um, but he wasn't returning her emails or phone calls as often as he had been, Um, although he was still doing that a little bit, Mm -hmm. but he still viewed her as a friend. And he finally sat her down after New Year's. I mean, who besides me breaks up with somebody at Christmas? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So... He sat her down and, and said, I've met somebody and I've fallen in love and I want to have a relationship with her. Now, according to Nowak, Ophelaine told her that he wanted to continue seeing both of them. I don't know if that's true. That's what she told the detective. They spent a lot of time kind of going back and forth. She didn't explicitly say for a while during that interview that he wanted to see both of them. And that's why she had driven 900 miles to talk to Colleen Shipman about whether or not Colleen Shipman was agreeing to this. It took me nine years to get there, but I 
she drove across the country to kill Colleen Shipman. Well, I was going to say, it seemed obvious from the stuff she brought with her. You know, when I go to talk to somebody, I I generally leave my steel mallet and my BB pistol and my hunting knife at home. <laughs> that could be That's a personal, a personal preference. Part, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so let, let's pick up on that point. What what Aside from what she brought with her, and maybe there is no aside that it becomes obvious, what makes you believe her intent was to murder Colleen Shipman? Well, she wasn't thinking straight. She had lost about 20% of her body weight oh my gosh. Um, in the span of five to six weeks. She had four major life events that just one of them alone kind of throws most people for a loop. She uh, found out that she was not going to get another shuttle mission, and there were only a few left at that point. So yeah. She realized her astronaut career that she'd been training for, for 10 years was over. Her husband moved out. When she told her parents that she and her husband were getting a divorce, her mother stopped talking to her, which is just baffled. That just blew. Yeah, it's detailed in a letter that um, that Lisa Nowak wrote to Billy Ophelein's mother saying, you know, my mother is not supportive. And um, the fourth event, of course, was that this man that she had fallen in love with was drifting away from her. I think in her mind, she thought. You know, if she just eliminated Colleen Shipman, that she could console him and they could get back together. And she had arranged, actually badgered a NASA employee to put her and Billy Ophaline on a training flight on the Wednesday after all of this happened. And so the theory was, you know, she was going to console him because his girlfriend, he couldn't get a hold of her. Before we move on, I feel like we have to deal with the diaper issue because that's what really grabbed the public's attention is. The idea of this woman was so obsessed with getting to Orlando and confronting her romantic rival that she used diapers so she wouldn't have to pull over. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought that was really illuminating in, in the book, the way it dealt with that. So the detective searched her car, and he was hoping to find evidence that would corroborate his theory that, yes, she had driven here to kill this woman. I believe it was behind the driver's seat. He found a garbage bag, and inside the garbage bag were two used diapers. Mm. And at first, he panicked and thought she had brought children with her. And he asked her, "Where, you know, where is the baby? And she's like, there's no baby. He's like, well, why do you have used diapers in, in your car? And she told him, according to him, that she had used the diapers on her trip so she wouldn't have to stop. He and I both agree that she used the diapers so she wouldn't be seen. These are not adult diapers. Let's just make that clear, because I think a lot of people thought they were like astronaut diapers. No, these are not adult diapers. They're not astronaut diapers. They were toddler-sized diapers with a cartoon character on them, probably Elmo. And he did not put the diapers in evidence because he's like, I mean, the evidence people would just go, oh, my God, that's disgusting. Why did you put yeah. these in evidence? And, <laughs> yeah. You said she didn't well, want to be me... seen. What What do you mean by that? Didn't want to be seen by how would that prevent her from being seen? I'm, I'm struggling have to there. pull over. Well, if okay. she pulled over off to the side of the road and used them in her car, she wouldn't be seen at a rest stop or in a McDonald's. Um, she, but 900 so, miles, she'd have to stop for gas, wouldn't she? She would. Um, and she also stopped and stayed. She also stopped and stayed in a um, hotel in Defuniac Springs. Now, and let me say what her attorney insists: mm-hmm. 
uh, and also what she told her psychiatrist and what she told the Naval panel, that the diapers were left in the car a year and a half earlier during mm. a hurricane evacuation. And let's all say, ooh, at one time. Um, so those had been there for how long? A year and a half. Yikes. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. <laughs> so her, the first time after her attorney came out and said these were left in the car after a hurricane evacuation, and I wrote about, you know, I always put a line in the story about the diaper, her crisis communications person, Marty McKenzie, called and said, you know, Donald Lickaback said that these were left after hurricane evacuation. You know, why do you have to keep writing about this? And I'm like, Marty, what is more bizarre, that she used them on this 900-mile trip or that she left them in the car for a year and a half? <laughs> well, especially what? being so fastidious and detail-oriented, I mean, that just is impossible to believe that's the case. Yeah. Well, she also was messy and a hoarder. Oh, yes, a messy, um, detail-oriented Asperger's <laughs> engineer genius. That yes. really, yes. When she got <sighs> a hobby, she didn't just do one or two or three things. She would do like a hundred things. She had some clippings from Laurel Clark's African violets in her house, and she would propagate these. Uh-huh. And so she had about four hundred. African violets in her house, but they weren't full-size plants. They were they were cuttings that she was trying to grow, and she would give them out as gifts. She had a stamp collection to make cards, and so she didn't just have a couple of stamps. She had a couple hundred stamps, and it was that kind of thing. And she couldn't. Yeah, yeah but that's not the same as keeping diapers from a year and a half before. She, uh, nowhere <laughs> close. No. <laughs> You mentioned that William Opheline, I hope I'm saying that right, didn't consider them boyfriend-girlfriend. What, what was the nature of their relationship? What, you know, Facebook official or were they, you know, friends with benefits or, you know, how, how long had they been together? What, what were the specifics of their uh, intimate, intimate relationship? Well, it started in 2004 on that survival training. He told the detectives in his one and only interview that they were seeing each other and that it was a romantic relationship. But then he later said in the interview, well, I don't know that I would call it that. So he was seeing her. He told Colleen Shipman that he was seeing her, but they that he had broken up with her. But that weekend in Houston, Colleen saw a purple bike in his apartment. It was a second bike that was in there, and it was there because... Lisa Nowak and William Ophelein trained together um, for these bike races. Colleen was Hmm. like, are you sure that you should have her bike here? You know, am I going to, is some crazy woman going to knock on my door? She literally said that. And, and, you know, it turns out within, what, like 48 hours, that's exactly what happened. The crazy woman knocked on her car door. Car door, Um, yeah. And then what happened? (laughs) Well... Lisa Nowak followed Colleen Shipman throughout Orlando International Airport for about two and a half to three hours. Colleen's bag didn't arrive, and so she decided to wait for it at the airport. And um, she got something to eat at Starbucks. Colleen did. She drank her hot chocolate and ate her Danish, and then she uh, laid down and took a nap. And the whole time, Lisa Nowak was watching her. And following her. And there is video from Orlando International Airport of all of this. 
And then they rode the bus out to the blue lot together. And mm. um, Colleen Shipman, Lisa Nowak never said a word to Colleen or the bus driver. But she had noticed and her by then, right? Colleen had. Colleen looked at her and, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning at that point. She's just kind of staring at the only other person on this bus. Oh my gosh, it's three o'clock in the morning? I mean, so this is obvious. I mean, this is not, I'm thinking Orlando and this place is busy. I mean, there's thousands of people. That's not what we're talking about here. Oh, no, no. It it was just the two of them on the shuttle bus out to the blue lot. And Colleen's looking at her and she's like, and Lisa had her uh, jeans rolled up because they're both short. I mean, I'm 5'8", and I towered over Lisa Nowak. Um, Colleen said she understood, you know, trying to find jeans that were short enough. And, um, she noticed her glasses, which were like from the 1980s, they were huge. But then she also noticed, and it was February and it can get a little chilly in Florida, but Lisa Nowak had on layers of clothes, like you would wear up North to stay warm. Um, Mm -hmm. although again, she had lost 20% of her body weight. So maybe she was cold. I, I don't know, but she followed Colleen to her car, and Colleen could hear like the swish, swish, swish of her pant oh, legs man. rubbing against each other as she's running up behind Colleen, who is getting into her car. And you know, she quickly threw her backpack in and then got in the car and locked the doors. And if Colleen Shipman hadn't locked those doors, we might not be having the same conversation. So Lisa Nowak starts slapping at the window, not not gently knocking on it, but slapping on it, and uh, and. Can you swear on your show? Go right ahead. So Colin Shipman was like, Some people swear at our show. (laughs) 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 Lady, you scared the shit out of me. And um, she's like, oh, can you give me a ride, please? You know, my boyfriend was supposed to pick me up and he's not here. And um, can you give me a ride back to the airport? And, you know, Colleen was like, well, why is she meeting him in the parking lot? Why isn't she meeting him in the terminal? And she was like, well, I'll I'll go and get help for you. And, um, you know, Lisa is seeing her chance to get in this car fade away. She asked to use her phone, and Colleen Shipman's phone um, was dead. And she held it up and showed her and said, no, my phone's dead. And then Lisa said, what? I can't hear you. And she started to cry, and Colleen kind of felt sorry for her. And this is what gets women killed. You don't want to be impolite. Oh, yeah. Mm. So she started to roll her window down, and it was one of those that if you touch, if you touch the mechanism, that it starts to go down all the way. And so she caught it, but um, it had gone down far enough where Lisa Nowak squirted pepper spray in the car. Colleen Shipman called her a bitch, rolled the window up, and started to back up, and then saw that she could go forward, which she did, and almost hit Lisa Nowak in the process. And then, you know, reported to the toll taker that, you know, she just been attacked by this woman that she thought was trying to carjack her because she didn't recognize her. And the police were called. The police came out and rounded up two women. One was sitting on a bus and Colleen said, no, that's not her. And then the other one was sitting at the bus stop where they had both just gotten off the bus. And um, and that was her. Hmm. And she had changed coats. She had taken off her wig because um, she was wearing a black wig. And um, Colleen said, she, you know, she's wearing some different clothes. And her hair is different, but that's her because she the, the cuffs on her jeans were rolled up, and she recognized that and her shoes, and, and and here we are. Wow. She started to go into her duffel bag, which of course held 
the BB pistol. Actually, the BB pistol, I think she put into a bag along with her wig and put in a garbage can. But the duffel bag still had a knife and the steel mallet and the police took the bag. And um, they also found her NASA ID that said Lisa Nowak. Mm. After this, when did you tie into this story as, uh, you know, your job as a journalist and a reporter and realize that this is not your run-of-the-mill sort of, you know, assault in a parking lot and and start following the story more closely? Well, that was early Monday morning. Monday night at 11, you know, I'm watching TV. The 11 o'clock news comes on and... um, the Channel 6 announcer, the the anchor woman, comes on and says an astronaut's been arrested and for assaulting a woman at OIA and apparently used diapers on this long drive from Houston. And I literally sat up and was like, what? Hmm. What did she just say? <laughs> I think and, everybody felt the same way. <laughs> diapers? Um, <laughs> and I called, uh, I called my boyfriend at the time, and I'm like, you're not even going to believe this. And told him. And the next morning, I got a phone call from my boss, Don Walker, uh, who said, can you go? She's going to you know, get out of jail. Can you go cover this? And so, of course, I drove over. And um, there were a few reporters when I got there and maybe one or two um, TV remote trucks. And then throughout the day, you know, satellite trucks started pulling up and it just became the epicenter of news. What, for the world. What was your first impression? Of, and obviously, you didn't sit down and have a conversation in tea, but you see her, you're around oh, her to some Lord. extent. What was your first impression? Well, so we're waiting all day at the jail. And then the jail spokesperson comes out and said they've added a charge because she had originally been charged with like attempted burglary of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And um, they came out and said she, they've added a charge, and the added charge was attempted murder. That's a big one. And I go in, I go into the, into that in, in the book how that came about, how they added that charge. But um, so we all went upstairs for her first appearance on that charge, and you know she just was a very slight, meek person. Didn't really say a whole lot. Her attorney was very angry. In the book, I say that he's Perry Mason without the charm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's very assertive. He's a Marine. And he wore what I, it just came to be known as Donald Lickaback's uniform. It was a, you know, a Navy suit, a red tie, and then his Marine Corps pin on his lapel. But um, we waited for her to come out. And it was just about sunset. And I had gone into the waiting area at the jail. Steve Lindsay and another astronaut were in there waiting for her to get out. They had come to take her home. And before I worked at Florida Today, I worked for about a year and a half for Habitat for Humanity International, and I rewrote their crisis communications manual. And I wanted to go up and go, look, just walk her to the car. It's going to take 10 seconds, and then it'll be over with. But I couldn't cross that line, and I couldn't say anything to them. So the jail spokesperson came and said, you know, everybody needs to wait outside. So I was right by the front door. I was going to be the first person she saw. And we could see, you couldn't see into the doors, but you could see out of them if you were inside. But so Mm -hmm. we could see kind of shadows of somebody coming to the door and everybody got really quiet and the door opened and there she is. And she's got a jacket over her head. And I just went, Oh no, because I call it the veil of the guilty. They don't want to be seen, so they put something over their head. We're still going to see you, by the way. 
we're just going to see you with a jacket over your head. And it yeah. just makes you look incredibly guilty. And, well, um, and plus the mug shots are available. So, you know, sure. why do that? And the mug shot is horrible. I mean, you don't even recognize her, you know, from her NASA astronaut portrait. And then there's this woman with, you know, makeup askew and kind of wincing at the camera and her hair's, you know, not brushed. And it just was an incredible descent from July 4th of 2006 to February 5th of 2007. Did she finally get some help? She did. I mean, she had multiple sessions with one of the two psychiatrists that she was ordered to go have an evaluation with. You know, the last public picture that I've seen of her um, was at a women's astronaut reunion, and she looked like her old self again, smiling, rosy cheeks. She looked happy. I've heard through her crisis communications person that, you know, she's just living quietly in the same house in Houston that she shared with her husband. She's raising her daughters. They're both in high school. Her um, son is nine or 10 years older than the twin girls. He has a good job in computers at a large corporation in Houston. But, you know, her PR person said she will never talk about this publicly. What about William Ophelein and Colleen Shipman? Where are they today? They were not at her Navy hearing, which was in, uh, I believe, August of 2010, because they were on their honeymoon in uh, Bora Bora. They, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they've had a son, and he's learning to fly. They are in Alaska, uh, which is where he um, grew he's up from, spent right? most yeah. of his formative years and graduated from high school there. He was actually, um, kind of a side note, was in a very bad accident his senior year of high school. A drunk driver hit him when he was pushing his car off the road after a Beach mm. Boys concert. It broke his leg to the point where his foot was facing the wrong direction. You know, when he went into the hospital, and he wrote about this for something called the Forget Me Not Foundation, which is an anti-drunk driving foundation in Alaska. A couple of orderlies held him down, and the doctor flipped his leg to the right direction. Mm. And he said it was the most pain he's ever been in. And he's got a little, a little bit of a bounce to his walk um, because of that, because he's missing half an inch or an inch off that leg now. And I'm surprised, you know, that it didn't hold him back from becoming um, a fighter pilot and it didn't hold him back from becoming an astronaut, which I think is a testament to his determination to not only recover, but thrive and continue to seek his goals. He had a football scholarship to Oregon, which oh boy, that ended. Yeah, Your book came out uh, this past September. Folks can find it at uh, upf.com. That's University Press Florida, amazon.com, hopefully bookstores everywhere online. This incident happened in 2007, so we're talking about 13 years here. And I, I don't think people understand the commitment to writing a book, what that involves, how it takes over your life necessarily. When you dove into this subject matter, which you obviously did for years, you were part of covering it uh, for the newspaper and then decided to write a book, you, you go through all of this. How did immersing yourself in this story change you? Oh, gosh. That's an interesting question. I mean, my main motivation to write it was to try and figure out how she could fall to the level of just mere mortals who get caught up in in a love triangle. Um, how does it change me? Um, maybe uh, the discipline it took 
to just continue to trudge forward with this. And it took 13 years, not because, you know, I was that involved in so much research, although I was, but, you know, life got in the way. Both my parents got sick and passed away, and I got married and got divorced and went through, you know, my stepson having... um, he wound up in prison. Um, he decided to be uh, an, a pharmaceutical entrepreneur, as I like to put it. So oh boy. it took so long just because life got in the way. I'm proud to have finished it. I hope that it helps somebody um, who might be struggling with their own mental health issues to understand that they're not alone and that there is help out there. And even somebody like an astronaut has to get help every once in a while. Did it change your view of astronauts in general? and our effort to to explore space? I will say that I think it changed my view of NASA a little bit in that maybe they're not quite as prepared as one would hope that they would be. There were two studies that I found some interesting things in. One study showed that on a long-duration space flight of six astronauts going to Mars, for instance, there is at least a 53% chance that one crewmate will have a major mental health issue. And by major, they mean something that they would have to be hospitalized for. Um, So the minimum amount is a 53% chance. The maximum amount was an 89% chance. Yikes. And they don't really have a plan for what to do when this happens because, you know, a mission to Mars could take two and a half to three years. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen if you're in, you know, month 11? What do you do with this person? They do have a plan for what happens on the International Space Station. You can tie somebody up. You can sedate them. um, You can talk to them. You can then put them back in a capsule to go back to Earth. But, you know, what do you do when you're you're on your way to Mars and you can't really turn around and come back? And you don't. You definitely don't want to do the astronaut version of the Donner Party. <laughs> that's, that's. I don't think they're going to eat them, but who, you know they could do the they could do the NASA version of Hal and jettison them out the. Well, yeah. Out the odd bay door. I don't. I'm sorry, Hal. I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Our guest has been Kimberly Moore. She is the author of Starcross, the story of astronaut Lisa Nowak, a fascinating story that we barely scratched the surface of all of these details and many, many more can be found in the book, which you can find at Amazon.com, UPF.com, that's University Press Florida, and hopefully in, in bookstores near you. This has really been enlightening, Kimberly. Thank you so much for your time. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. I'm kind of kind of flabbergasted. It, but, it, uh, interesting always with these people we put on a pedestal and admire, be they athletes, politicians, actors, or astronauts. And and, um, it's easy for me to see how someone who would have to be that high-strung, that type A, that focused, you know, a a little wobble in the system sets you totally off kilter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, well, and I think it's very telling that, you know, not even NASA really wanted to believe that these folks could have problems until this Mm -hmm. particular uh, very violent episode occurred and suddenly went, Oh, huh, I guess everybody has mental issues from time to time, and maybe we should take that into account. Yeah. 
Well, and, and certainly through the years, mental health has become much more, or, or discussions about mental health or mental illness have become much more normalized, much more regular regularized. It, it does not have the stigma generally that it used to. I think there is still a stigma. But again, when you're talking about military astronauts, male-dominated fields pilots. like the yep. pilots. Yeah, I mean, you're talking, you know, testosterone, Top Gun, mm-hmm. the whole thing. I mean, this is not a place where you admit to weakness. Yeah. I should mention, too, that in, in Florida, one of the reasons why you have so many Florida man stories is that we are generally ranked 49th among the states for spending on mental health treatment, mm-hmm. um, to which I can only say thank God for Texas, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you remember about this story as it came out in in the news and the the reporting on it started? Well, the the I mean, obviously the diaper detail was a yeah. thing that I think grabbed everybody's attention. Just the idea that she drove, she was so obsessed with driving from Houston to Florida to attack this romantic rival that she, you know, used diapers rather than pull over. And I guess the interesting thing from the book is it wasn't just that she didn't want to stop. It's that she didn't want to stop and be seen. It was a way of sort of having it. It's not a great alibi, but basically to say, well, if I had to, if I'd driven all that way, wouldn't I have had to stop somewhere? Well, no, you don't. But I mean, it's just, it's, it's sort of a marker of her, of her mental problems that she thought that was a solution. And that was part of her method. But I, I don't think she had, well, clearly she hadn't thought the whole thing through. Uh, it was just a, a half formed plan. And thank God she didn't get to carry it all the way out. Welcome to Florida.